as we look at John chapter 21 and the last two verses of the last chapter of John 21. Because today we complete nearly 16 months of study together in the Gospel of John. We began on September 16th of 2007. We took a break beginning May of last year. We resumed this past December. And this will be our 48th and final message in the Gospel of John. Now, you may think that 16 months and 48 messages is a bit of overkill. But the truth is we've only scratched the surface of the rich meaning of this book. And if it makes you feel any better... For 32 years, James Montgomery Boyce was the pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church. That's right, 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia. He wrote a commentary on the Gospel of John that is five volumes. While he was a graduate student in Switzerland, he read every every major commentary on the book of John. He engaged in hundreds of studies on specific subjects within the book of John. And then later in his church, he took eight years to preach through the book. Those sermons were the basis of that five-volume commentary set, set, 270 sermons, 2,700 pages of typescript. He devoted years and years of study to this one book of the Bible, and in the end, he said he could do it all again and still learn much more. Now, as we've spent now these 47, now 48th messages together looking at the Gospel of John, we've observed John's careful presentation of select miracles. He calls them signs and the teachings that Jesus gave to explain those miracles, those signs, as he surveyed the life of Jesus. And he's done so all for one purpose. You've turned to chapter 21, but just look up to chapter 20 and the last two verses of chapter 20 verses 30 and 31 Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the son of God and that by believing you may have a life in his name and we have looked together then as John has carefully laid out these miracles, these signs, the explanation of what they represent, all for the purpose of identifying who Jesus is, that he is indeed the Christ, the Son of God, and he bids you to believe, and that believing you might have life in his name. Most of you know that there are four Gospels in your New Testament. The first four books of your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are in this particular category that we call the Gospels. And they're in a particular category because they deal with the earthly life and ministry of Jesus. They each have a different purpose, a different goal in the way they arrange the material that they observe from the life of Jesus. So Matthew focuses on Jesus as the son of David. Mark focuses upon Jesus as the son of man. Luke focuses upon Jesus as the son of Adam. And John focuses upon Jesus as the son of God. And John has accomplished that purpose by accurately recounting what he observed. And then in turn, he wrote it down for us. Now we can look to the writing of John because he preserved it for us and thereby know who Jesus is. We do not have first-hand observation 
like John did, but we have his absolutely accurate record of who Jesus is as evidenced by what Jesus did. Now, the fact that we depend on a book for what we believe gets to an issue that every one of us has to wrestle with at some point in our lives. Everyone needs to identify his or her epistemology. You say, that's exactly what I was thinking. No, you actually are saying, I can't keep straight an epistle from an apostle, and now you're talking about epistemology. What is epistemology? Well, it's a fancy term that has to do with how you know what you think you know. How do you arrive at knowledge? Ultimately, it gets to how you know what's true and from what source or sources you derive that truth. When I speak with folks to try to help them from the scriptures in counseling sessions, both formal and informal, I talk epistemology with them all the time. I do that when I challenge an individual to think about how they know what's true and right and good. I had a discussion with an unsaved man a few weeks ago. And he was telling me that his marriage is not what it should be. His wife is not what she should be. His life is not going the way it's supposed to. And I said to him, you know, whenever we use words like the way it should be or the way it's supposed to be, we're engaging in this issue of how we know what's true. Now, I didn't use the word epistemology with him. Can you imagine his reaction? Listen, guy, you need to get your epistemology straight. But the truth is, we do it all the time. You hear people do it all the time. You know, it ought to be this way. It really should be this way. That's really not right. They may be correct in their assessment, but the question is, how do you know? How do you know what's right and the way it should be and the way it's supposed to be? And I repeatedly challenged this man. Asking him to tell me, on what basis do you say those things? And the truth was, like every unbeliever, he had no basis except the shifting sand of his own opinion. How do we know what we believe? From where do we derive it? How do we know what's right and wrong, true and false? How do we know that Jesus is Savior and Lord and God? Our belief, our faith, rests on the completely reliable, accurate, true testimony of Holy Scripture. It's foundational to the revealed religion. Notice how I say that, the revealed religion. God has revealed, made known that truth. It is the Scriptures foundational to the revealed religion that is Christianity. And as it applies to Jesus and who He is, it's not then a matter of who Jesus is in your heart. Or what Jesus means to you. It's that Jesus has been identified in the objective truth of the Bible. His words and deeds recorded. And they are there for evaluation, for inspection. And as John says, prayerfully for acceptance. That by believing you might have life in his name. And as such then, the Gospel of John is a microcosm, miniature version of what the entire Bible does. It's a small version of the whole Bible which is designed to reveal God, make God known to us. And that's why I titled this series, 
You've seen these now 48 times. This title, Meet Your Maker. Because in these pages, we are given the evidence of who Jesus is. This is how we know who Jesus is. Because we have the recorded testimony of John and others. And in the final two verses of the entire book that we're going to examine today, John says this, chapter 21, verses 24 and 25. This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. We're going to see today, as I have for you in the take-home truth that is part of the outline that was inserted in your program, I invite you to look there. We're going to see that the Bible is sufficient testimony of the infinite glory of Jesus, who is none other than God the Son. Now, verse 24 tells us the Bible provides sufficient testimony. Throughout the book of John, we continually encounter an unnamed disciple. Several times throughout the Gospel of John, he's simply referred to as, quote, the one whom Jesus loved. And we know by process of elimination that this one whom Jesus loved was none other than the Apostle John. And last week we saw that the Lord took Peter on a long walk along the Sea of Galilee to discuss with Peter the details of Peter's future martyrdom. In verse 20, we're told that the beloved disciple John followed Jesus and Peter. And now in verse 24, it says that disciple, that follower of Jesus, is the one who, quote, testifies to these things and who wrote them down. John now, in the last, second to the last verse of the entire book, finally identifies himself as the one who wrote this. Now, this is important for our epistemology. How do we know? How do we know what we know? Well, here's why it's important for our epistemology that John wrote these things down, because it underscores the fact, the first one I have for you in your outline, that the Bible provides eyewitness testimony. Now, think of the value of that. The life and the words of Jesus come to us by hands of those who walked with him, lived with him, and were taught by him. As I said a bit ago, most people just make it up as they go. Wouldn't you say that's your experience as you talk to folks? I'm just making it up. It's right because I think it's right. It's right because it feels right. It's right because I want it to be right. Therefore, they can accuse you and the church of being hypocrites. Why? Because you have a published standard against which you are compared. They'll never be a hypocrite because they just make it up as they go anyway. Most people just make it up. They just have their view. And they don't need any authoritative source to undergird what they believe. It's true because I believe it. That's true at the street level. The regular, everyday guy operates this way. But it's not just the man on the street. That approach is the approach taken in the academy as well. Among supposedly educated and sophisticated people. You've probably never heard of process theology, and that's probably just as well. But here's a simple overview of process theology. 
Committed evolutionists can't explain progress according to physical laws. And so they contrived a theory that the universe is, in essence, the body of God. Moment by moment, each particle at a subatomic level explodes into being and then ceases to exist. But the data from that particle lays the foundation for the next particle that explodes into being. And God's role is to try to influence the particles to organize differently so that progress can be made. And so, moment by moment, God is taking all the data of all the particles of existence in all the universe, and he's evaluating it in order to influence change in the next moment of concrete reality. According to this belief system, God is in process, thus the name, process theology. God contains a changing universe, so God is changeable. That is, God's affected by the actions that take place in the universe over the course of time. Now, there's going to be a test. Everybody have that? Now, there's much more to process theology. I won't bore you with any more of it. But I just give you that sampling. And I wonder if you might think, you know, that some Yahoo just made this up. Somebody on the lunatic fringe of society, the truth is it began at Harvard. It was popularized at the Divinity School at the University of Chicago, and it's influenced every mainline liberal denomination in the country. Now, it's really sad when you realize that intelligent men and women have devoted their lives to this worldview, this approach. And they're passionate about it. And yet it is pure speculation. It's sophisticated, it's complex to be sure, but it's speculation nonetheless. Alfred North Whitehead is the one who started it at Harvard University. And the truth is, Whitehead just sucked it out of his thumb. Without any evidence to support it. Now contrast that with John's statement. I was there. And he was there when the Father, God the Father, thundered from the heavens. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And John was there when Jesus spoke in the midst of a wedding feast in Cana back in John chapter 2. And in the words of one author, quote, Conscious water knew its Lord and it blushed and was turned to wine. And John was there when Jesus single-handedly cleared the temple of mass sacrilegious businessmen by the sheer strength of his moral authority. And John was there when Jesus, in an act of created power, fed 5,000 men and their families from a little boy's tiny lunch. He was there when Jesus bestowed the gift of sight to one who had been born blind. He was there when Jesus stood at the tomb of his friend and he called Lazarus back from the clutches of death by the word of his lordship. He was there when a soldier jammed a spear into the side of the crucified Jesus, puncturing his side, resulting in a flow of red blood and clear serum, a sure sign of death. And just hold your finger here and turn back a page to chapter 19 and verse 35. And John writes, the man who saw it has given testimony and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that you also may believe. 
John was there. And John was there when this same Jesus in flesh and bone materialized in the midst of a room where his disciples were gathered, though the doors were locked. And he was there when Jesus visibly restored the fallen Peter, as we saw last week in the first part of this chapter, and commanded Peter to carry out his mission, feed my sheep. John was there. Friends, the truth of Christianity does not rest on the unstable foundation of mere wishful thinking or speculation. It rests on the facts observed by eyewitnesses of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why Peter, one of those who observed it, said this in one of the books he wrote in your New Testament. We did not follow cleverly invented stories. When we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. The Bible gives you eyewitness testimony. But it also gives you a preserved testimony. Verse 24 says this. John wrote them down. The testimony of this eyewitness, John, and the other eyewitnesses that wrote the books of your New Testament are written. Nearing the end of the first generation of Christians, the testimony had to be preserved. And Jesus had promised to John and the other apostles, the first followers of Jesus, that he, the Holy Spirit, would give them perfect recall so that they could record the message of Christ. They had been with Jesus, so it's significant that the text stresses the fact that it's written by an eyewitness. Now, it seems at first, perhaps, to be unnecessary. And yet, in our time, we understand the significance of this being written all the more. Most scholars, even liberal scholars, have to admit the biblical data take us back to eyewitness records. Now, indeed, there are some more radical in their views who deny the Bible accounts altogether. Let's give you one quick example. We'll move on. There was a fellow named Rudolf Bultmann, German theologian. He suggested that there was a period of time in which stories of Jesus circulated in the church. Old stories were embellished, new stories were formed to meet new needs that arose through the years. Finally, the church recorded an official record of the life of Jesus. And so Boltman says that we can merely affirm that Jesus existed, but we can never have any certain historical information about him. But the author of this gospel spoke directly to unbelieving speculation like that of Boltman. He says, I'm an eyewitness. I wrote it down. The testimony is in writing. It's preserved for us. And furthermore, it's corroborated testimony. That's the third thing that I have in your outline. There's an interesting feature of verse 24 where John switches to the plural. Notice it says, we know his testimony is true. Now, some say that this is simply a literary device called an editorial we. It's a polite way of just referring to yourself. That could be the case. I wouldn't argue strenuously with someone who said so. But I think the reference to testimony in verse 24 triggers in the mind of John and of his readers what Deuteronomy chapter 19 says in the first part of your Bible, that every fact must be established by the, do you all remember the word, the testimony of two 
or three witnesses. And so he underscores that the testimony that he's giving is not his alone. Others corroborate this message as truth. Now, who are these others? It's probably a reference to the other apostles. Even though some of them were gone, dead by this time, John's memory still burned with the words of Jesus commissioned to these men. The Spirit will testify, and you, the apostles, will testify about me. They lived and they worked with the recognition that they were the mouthpieces of the Spirit of God. And so he writes, this is the disciple who testifies to this, these things and wrote them down. We know, we know his testimony is true. We saw it as Peter saw it, as John saw it. Friends, the gospel of John is a sufficient testimony to the glory of Christ. But the second major point in your outline is this. The Bible provides a glimpse and but a glimpse of the glory of Jesus. John is focused upon himself just in this one verse, just long enough to say that I was there, I saw it with my own eyes, I committed it to writing, but John does not want to focus on himself. He wants to turn the attention quickly back to the one about whom he's writing, the Lord Jesus. And so D.A. Carson observed, quote, it is as if John has identified himself, but he's not content to focus on himself. He must close by saying his own work is only a minute part of all the honors due the Son. Now notice the contrast between verses 24 and 25. Verse 24, John says, I wrote down these things. It refers to the content of the book of John. But Jesus did, verse 25, many other things. From this we learn that the testimony of the Bible Absolutely accurate, absolutely reliable, eyewitness, corroborated, written down, preserved testimony. But it is limited. It doesn't tell us everything that Jesus did. Not even close. The International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. It's a four-volume set that I have. And it says this about the Gospel of John. The first thing that strikes the reader is the small amount of the real time filled up by the scenes that are described in the gospel. Take the night of the betrayal and the day of the crucifixion, the things done and the words spoken on that day from one sunset to another occupy no fewer than seven chapters of the gospel of John, chapters 13 through 19. The first 20 chapters in the gospel contain 697 verses, and these seven chapters, chapters 13 through 19, have 257 of them. So more than one-third of the entire book about Jesus' ministry is occupied with the events of a single day. This shows, they go on to say, that John does not intend to set forth a complete account of the life and work of Jesus. It gives at most an account of, now get this, the Gospel of John gives at most an account of 20 days out of the 1,000 days of our Lord's three-and-a-half-year ministry. John has selected this material in order to show what he set out to prove. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and his desire is that you would believe based upon that sufficient testimony. This book only begins to tell the story. In a sense, it's a finite testimony to the infinite Christ. It deals with only his 
three years of public ministry. And it records only some of his works and his words in those three years. And it uses a limited number of words and sentences to record those facts. John has not written all he knows about Jesus, nor all there is to know about Jesus. A first century rabbi is reported to have said this. If all the heavens were sheets of paper and all the trees were pens for writing and all the seas were ink, that would not suffice to write down the wisdom I've received from my teachers. And yet I've taken no more from the wisdom of the sages than a fly does when it dips into the sea and bears away a tiny drop. And so can you imagine how John felt after having been with the infinite Christ? And so he says, Jesus did many other things as well. John wants us to know, what I've given you is only part of the story. And why? That's the last part in your outline. The glory of Jesus is infinite glory. The book concludes, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Now, some commentators say that when John says this, that you know Jesus did so many things that the whole world couldn't contain the books if all of them, some of them just say that's a delightful, that's a quote, a delightful exaggeration. But I believe the statement is true. If not for all the deeds and teachings of Jesus during his ministry, surely it's true that one could never put in writing the significance, the importance, the implications of all that Jesus is and all that Jesus did in his life and his death and his resurrection. But John has given us this feeble and, thank God, preserved and accurate attempt. Origen was an early church father, an early Christian. He said this, It's impossible to commit to writing all those particulars that belong to the glory of the Savior. Philo, another early Christian, said, Were God to choose to display his own riches, even the entire earth with the sea turned into dry land would not contain them. William Barclay said, Whatever we know of Christ, we've only grasped a fragment of him. Whatever the wonders we've experienced, they're nothing to the wonders which we will yet experience. Human categories are powerless to describe Christ. Human books are inadequate to hold him. And so John ends with, Innumerable triumphs, the inexhaustible power and the limitless grace of Jesus Christ. There's a sense in which when John says this at the very end of this book, last verse, nothing can contain all that Jesus is about. When he says this, he's bringing us all the way back to the beginning of the book. You all remember the beginning? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And we have beheld His glory. The glory of the one and only come from God the Father. He's reminding us of who this is that I've been talking about. This one who walked the earth is none other than your Maker. Meet your Maker. Your Creator. The Word become flesh to do for you what you could not do for yourself. And as eternal God, his work then extends into eternity past. 
The Jesus to whom John bears witness is not only the obedient son and the risen Lord. He's the incarnate word. That is the word God made flesh. The one through whom the universe was created. If all his deeds were described, the world would be very small and an inadequate library indeed. How does one reduce the infinite God such that he can be captured in a finite library? Some of you know the preacher S.M. Lockridge. Some of you know that name. The late preacher S.M. Lockridge. I mean, this guy was a preacher. And he was one of those guys that could really womp it up. And really, while he's womping it up, really say some really neat stuff. I sometimes say some neat stuff because I say what's in the Bible. But I don't have the ability to really womp it up, as you may have noticed. But Lockridge could do that. S.M. Lockridge. Do you know what the S.M. stands for? Shadrach, Meshach, Lockridge. But he has this four-minute recording. I almost brought the audio in just for you to listen to it. But I decided I would, I would read it to you. I'm not going to be able to womp it up the way Lockridge does. But you can look it up. He's my king is a portion of a message that Lockridge preached. It's going to take me about three minutes to go through what he says. He's the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. That's my king. David said the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament show his handiwork. My king is the only one whom there is no means of measure that can define his limitless love. No far-seeing telescope can bring into visibility the coastline of his shore of supplies. No barriers can hinder him from pouring out his blessing. He's enduringly strong, entirely sincere, eternally steadfast, immortally graceful, Imperially powerful, impartially merciful, that's my king. He's God's son, the sinner's savior, the centerpiece of civilization. He stands alone in himself. He is august, unique, unparalleled, unprecedented, supreme, preeminent. He's the loftiest idea in literature, the highest personality in philosophy. He's the supreme problem in high criticism. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the absolute necessity of spiritual religion. That's my king. He's the miracle of the age, the superlative of everything good that you choose to call him. He's the only one able to supply all your needs. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and saves. He's strong God and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers, forgives sinners, discharges debtors. He delivers the captives, defends the feeble, blesses the young, serves the unfortunate, regards the aged, rewards the diligent, and beautifies the meek. Do you know him? Asks Lockridge. My king is the key of knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance, the pathway of peace, the roadway of righteousness, highway of holiness, gateway of glory, master of the mighty, captain of the conquerors, head of the heroes, leader of the legislatures, overseer of the overcomers, governor of the governors, prince of princes, king of kings, lord of lords. 
that's my king. His office is manifold. His promise is sure. His light is matchless. His goodness limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. And Lockridge says, I wish I could describe him to you. But he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible, invincible, irresistible. I'm trying to tell you the heavens of heavens cannot contain him, let alone a man explain him. Yet you can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him off your hands. You can't outlive him and you can't live without him. Pharisees couldn't stand him and they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. The witnesses couldn't get their testimonies to agree. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. The grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. He's always been and he always will be. He had no predecessor and will have no successor. There was no one before him. There'll be nobody after him. You can't impeach him and he's not going to resign, he says. That's my king. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. All the power belongs to my king. He says we're around here talking about black power and white power and green power, but it's God's power. Thine is the power and the glory. And we get prestige and honor and glory for ourselves, but the glory is his. Thine is the kingdom and power and glory forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And how long is that, he asks. And ever and ever. And ever. And when you are finished with all of the forevers, all of God's people said, Amen. That's your maker. That's our king. And that's who John has presented to us in these pages. And now the question is, what do you do with him? His testimony is true. It's presented to you that you might believe and that by believing you might have life in his name. For those of us that have come to this Lord, our King, our Savior, our Maker, we're going to bow and we're going to thank God for Jesus Christ. We're going to thank God for the difference that he's made in our lives. We're going to recommit ourselves to this God, the portrait of whom we have seen in these 21 chapters together. And there are some of you here who have never come to the Savior. This is the time. Stop the nonsense. Stop the excuses. Your Savior has been presented to you. He offers himself and his work to you. It has been given in this testimony that you might believe. And so commit yourself to the one who has given himself for you. When we bow in just a moment. Now what do you do? Well. You do what we tell you every week. And some of you hear it every week. And you've been messing around. Don't mess around with this king. He's your savior. And he's your king. Hear this. If you refuse him as your savior. He's still going to be your king. And you will still do as he says. And it will still turn out as he said. And it will still happen with you as he says. And so bow before him and embrace him as your savior now. Realize you're a sinner. Recognize what John has presented is true about Jesus. Your God has come. 
to do for you what you couldn't do, to die for your sins on the cross of Calvary. Repent of your sins. Lord, I give my life to you. I'm going to go your way. No more making it up as I go. Receive Jesus Christ into your life as we bow and pray. In your own words, from your heart to God, ask him to forgive you of your sin. Let him tell him you want to bow before him as your Lord and you want to follow him with your life. Let's bow before the Lord. Father, we thank you profoundly for these months, these weeks that we've been able to spend looking at these 21 chapters penned by your servant, John. Thank you, Lord God, for using him, for moving upon him and the others that witnessed who Jesus is and what Jesus did and have preserved it for us. We thank you for this true, accurate, reliable testimony that we can have and embrace and believe. There is more testimony, more recorded testimony to the truth of who Jesus is than for any other book, any other author, any other event in the history of the world. And yet, Lord, there are those who still say, I want more evidence. I'm waiting for more information, but you have given absolutely sufficient testimony from the hand of your servants. It's been presented as accurately as we humanly can. And now, Lord, we ask you to move upon the hearts of men and women in this place. And I ask, Lord, that you would give new life to them so that they see with new eyes. And they embrace with, embrace with a transformed will that desires now to go your way and not their own way. Embrace the Savior of the book. Bow before him as the Lord and King and God that he is. And Lord, I thank you that you've done that in my life. I thank you for the profound difference it's made. I thank you for the, the joy and the purpose and the eternal life that you've given me because of Jesus Christ. And there's so many others here right now who are thanking you from their hearts for the difference that Jesus Christ has made. Lord, we love you because you first loved us. And we ask you, Lord, yes, to save those who had not come to you before they had walked in these doors but also in the lives of those of us who have known you for many years now. May Jesus always be precious. May Jesus always be preeminent. May he always be the alpha and the omega in our lives. The entirety of what we are about. May the things of earth, Lord, become faint and, and dull to us in comparison to the glory of our maker, our savior, our Lord, our King. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.